If there is one aspect or attribute of God that the Scripture goes to great lengths to make sure that we understand and that we know, it is this. God is merciful. And this truth, this attribute of God, His mercy has been the great comfort It's been the great hope. It's been the joyful song of the saints of God throughout the ages. When you read the Psalms, you see the mercy of the Lord is an attribute that is consistently exalted, consistently pleaded for, and consistently claimed by the psalmists. And those throughout Scripture who have truly experienced God's grace are shown to us in the pages of Scripture to be changed people. Those who have truly experienced God's grace are changed by it. As they live in complete gratitude to the Lord for His mercy upon them, they in turn begin to live lives that show mercy to everyone around them. And this mercy spoken of here in this text, this mercy spoken of throughout Scripture, speaks of two things. First, it's the withholding of judgments, the withholding of punishment, the withholding of wrath against an offender who sins against us or against the Lord. And instead, the display and exercise of compassion and sympathy toward those who have trespassed or sinned against us. So you see, there's two sides to this coin, right? One is the withholding of judgment and vengeance, and one is instead of just leaving that space void, filling it with compassion and filling it with sympathy. Mercy here speaks not of simply staying your hand when someone hurts you or someone angers you, but instead using that hand that would normally strike the cheek of the offender to care for them. Mercy is an active kindness that is concerned with meeting and addressing the great needs of the suffering sinners around you. Whether they be physical needs or even more spiritual needs. You see, mercy is one of the defining characteristics of the one who has truly experienced salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mercy is one of the defining characteristics of one who truly follows and has bent their knee to Lord Jesus, to the Lord Jesus. Because those who have truly experienced, those who truly understand the abundance of God's mercy that is poured upon them in your or upon you in your own lives, it will necessarily flow out of you that you will have mercy in your own towards others. So the question is, have you truly experience God's mercy in your own life? You can answer that question by looking at your life and answering this question. Are you merciful to others? See, there were a number of people groups or a number of groups that Jesus encountered during his earthly ministry, and none of them were more deluded than this one group called the Pharisees. They were the super conservative, self-righteous, book-smart religious leaders of the day. And Jesus consistently rebuked them on more than one occasion, not for their diligence, not for their being book-smart, not for anything that, you know, like, the, like that. But he consistently rebuked them for their lack of mercy. In Matthew 
chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, for example, we, hear, we read of a time when Jesus was sitting and reclining with a group of people. We read this. It says in verse 10, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, in this context, tax collectors are the worst kind of sinners that you could imagine. In the minds of these strict Jewish religious leaders, a tax collector was a horrendous type of sinner. Why? Because the tax collectors in question were Israelites. They were Jews who had turned their backs on their own people and instead extorted money from their own people in order to give it to the Romans. Now, they wouldn't just simply give it to the Romans, but they would stockpile a whole bunch for themselves. So if the Romans said, we need $20 per person for the taxes, this Jewish tax collector would go to his own people and say, all right, Rome demands $40. And they'd put $20 in their own bank account and they'd give $20 to Rome. And so these guys were getting rich off the backs of their own countrymen and then they were sending money to Rome and Rome would use that money to support the army that kept suppressing their own people. And so these religious leaders or these uh, tax collectors were hated. They were despised. They were abhorred by other Jews. They were abhorred by religious leaders who would rather spit in the face of one of these tax collectors than invite them over for dinner. And here is Jesus, our great merciful Savior, reclining at the table with these very tax collectors. Along with other sinners, And this group of other sinners was probably made up of a group of people that had committed sins that would make everyone in here blush if we were to list them off. But Christ sits here with them, compassionately talking with them, most likely teaching them about the good things available to all of them through faith in Him. Now contrast Jesus with the Pharisees, who, the text goes on in verse, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, It says, when they, that's the Pharisees, saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So Jesus saw these tax collectors, the ones that everyone else looked at with disdain as people. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as the sick who were in need of a caring and compassionate doctor. Those who were in need of the great doctor, Jesus, our great physician. But the Pharisees saw these same tax collectors And these same sinners as contaminants, as drains on society. And they made zero effort to help them. Zero effort to be compassionate toward them. Zero effort to help them up out of their estate. Instead, these religious leaders would heap more shame upon these already crushed and ground down souls. The Pharisees were so obsessed with trivial issues, getting angry at, looking down upon everyone who didn't measure up to the standards that they had created in their own minds, while the sick, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the sinners all languished and suffered in their sorrow. 
And so Jesus looked at these self-righteous, pompous, arrogant Pharisees and said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, be merciful. And on a different occasion, in Matthew 23, Jesus was pronouncing a series of woes against these same uh, Pharisees or a series of warnings against these same Pharisees, these same self-righteous religious leaders. And he again called upon them to be merciful, saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat, which is a really small fly, and swallowing a camel. See, the Pharisees were so concerned with and preoccupied with the smallest little deeds so that they could look extra righteous and look extra religious in front of everyone else around them. They made sure to follow the letter of the Old Testament law right down to the weights of the spices in their spice rack, all while leaving off the weightier and more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These Pharisees, who claimed to know the Lord, who claimed to follow the Lord, focused on all of these secondary matters at the expense of the primary matters, tithing their mint. Check. But caring for and showing mercy to the sinner? Never. And so Jesus pronounces a warning to them to do both. To both focus on the meticulous obedience to God's law and strive for holiness and strive for righteousness and strive to obey, but also to focus on these greater and weightier issues as well. And James, the brother of Jesus, would reiterate this in his letter when he wrote this in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, strive for holiness. Don't be worldly. Do not let the world shape your thinking. Let God's word shape your thinking. Be meticulous, be scrupulous in your labor for holiness, and at the very same time, be merciful, be compassionate. Visit orphans, visit widows in their distress. The Pharisees, you see, had not truly grasped mercy. They had not truly experienced God's mercy because God's mercy changes a person. And we who know Christ, we who adore the Lord and his mercy, a mercy that has been our hope and our song throughout the ages, know that his mercy is so rich, his mercy is so wonderful that even, even the unsaved world benefits from God's patient, long-suffering delay in returning. That is a mercy. So I know sometimes, you know, Christians, we look out at the world and we'll say, man, this world is just going crazy. And we'll say, oh, come, Lord Jesus. And that's a good prayer. But God's delay in coming is a mercy that he gives to the world. The Apostle Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is an act of God's mercy. That he hasn't come yet is an act of his mercy, giving opportunity for us, the church, to bring the message of the gospel of Christ, to bring the message of salvation offered to all people through and in Jesus Christ to the world. However, in reference to the world, there will come a day when his mercy ends, when his mercy gives way to his justice. As Peter continued, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. However, for those who believe in the Lord, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, for those, who's, for those who rest in the mercy of the Lord, who exalt Him for this attribute of mercy, we proclaim it to everyone, right? We speak about it to everyone. Why? Because His mercy toward us his children, his mercy towards everyone who believes, toward everyone who trusts in Christ, according to the old English preacher Charles Spurgeon, is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. So, two sides. The withholding of wrath and judgment and the giving of compassionate, kind-hearted care. This is mercy. And we're going to look at two stories, two examples of both of these in Scripture. First, David, and the second, Hagar. Two sides of mercy. As we realize that God, in His great mercy, has, one, withheld His righteous wrath and judgments upon us. He's withheld them. And two, or B, he has shown compassion on us who are dwelling in hopelessness and dwelling in helplessness. And those of us who've received this mercy, we are changed. And we see this as we look at our first example, David, the great king of Israel. This is an example of a man who received mercy and it changed him. And as a result, he became more merciful. You remember it, right? David, king of Israel after his depraved and sinful actions with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, pleaded with God for mercy. He understood that it is only the mercy of God that he could hope in. You remember the incident, right? You remember the depths of wickedness that David descended to during this time, right? As David walked on the roof of his palace. During the time when all of his men were off at war fighting for him, David was relaxing in his palace, walking on the roof. And as he looked down at the roofs of the houses of all of his subjects, his eyes were overtaken by a rather stunningly beautiful woman bathing on her housetop. And David, in that moment, being overtaken by the passions of his flesh, being consumed by lust for this woman on her roof, spun a tangled web of lies, a tangled web of deception and murder that ended with Uriah, this woman's husband, dead. This tangled web ended with Bathsheba, the woman in question, pregnant by an act of adultery. 
This act ended with David guilty of a number of grievous sins before the Lord. Now the Lord would have been perfectly righteous and perfectly just to at that moment pour out his immediate righteous judgment upon David, you wicked sinner. But he didn't. The Lord in his mercy did not consume or destroy David. His actions deserved it, but the Lord stayed his avenging hand and instead sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David. And Nathan entered into David's presence on one particular day and said this to David. You know, there was a rich man in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And we hear about David's response to this next. It's when uh, the text says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had no pity. So right away, David wants to lash out and bring down judgment upon the man who had done this. David reveals another in a long line of sins in his response to Nathan, that of abject hypocrisy. His anger was kindled with a man who took a sheep from somebody else. Now, it was a a, a tender story. The sheep was in the man's arms and whatnot. But it was a sheep. David didn't even stop to consider that his deeds were far worse. He took a wife from one of his most trusted confidants. Uriah was one of the mighty men who devoted his life to protecting David when David was at his most vulnerable. When David was running from King Saul, Uriah's life was put on the line for David every single day. But when David's passions and David's lusts overtook him, Uriah didn't stand a chance and he was killed for it. But at the story of a sheep, see, at 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 all of this, we read nothing about David's reaction or David's response, right? It just kind of goes quiet. But here comes Nathan, and he tells David the story of a sheep. And at the story of this sheep, David flies into a rage. Until Nathan the prophet revealed the point of the story, saying to David in 2 Samuel 12, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And it's at this moment 
when grief overtakes David. He realizes the wickedness of his deeds. He realizes the wickedness of his sin. And he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why didn't David die? It was simply by the pure mercy of God. And it was this mercy that David cried out for in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer of David concerning this exact incident in his life. David cried out after the prophet Nathan had said this to him. In Psalm 51, he said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. See, David was a man who here experienced the mercy of God. And he grasped just how wicked he was and what the Lord had done for him. It was a grace and it was a mercy that the Lord sent a prophet to him to rebuke him for his sin. And this recognition of God's mercy affected and impacted how David then, from this point on, treated other people. After the Uriah and the Bathsheba incident, his very own son Absalom rebelled against him. And there was a point in Absalom's rebellion against David when David had to flee from the capital, Jerusalem, because it seemed like Absalom started to gain the upper hand. And David fled with a number of his servants, a number of his people, a number of his mighty men. And so David was well protected by this host of people that went on with him. But along the way, a man named Shimei came, a man from the family of Saul, came out to meet David. And according to 2 Samuel 16, we read this, that Shimei cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, you, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Then Abishai, one of the king's servants, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Now, David as king, with a rather large contingent of battle-hardened warriors at his disposal, might very well have sent one of them to deal with this stone-throwing, David-cursing member of Saul's house. This is what was being recommended to him by his counselors. Abishai recommended that David separate Shimei's head from his body. However, David didn't do that. Instead, David said to everyone who was listening, Behold, 
My own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. David withheld his wrath and judgment against Shimei, an act of mercy. Even as Shimei followed them along the road, continued to throw stones and fling dust at them. Now, in due time, this rebellion that Absalom was, was leading ended up being crushed. When Absalom, riding on his mule, ended up getting his head stuck in a tree. And the mule kept going, and Absalom hung there in the tree. And he couldn't get out. And Joab, David's rather bloodthirsty, reckless, and impulsive military commander, was led to Absalom, and he saw Absalom hanging there in the tree and thrust three spears into the heart of Absalom, while his armor-bearers beat Absalom to death. Now, the son... The death of his son brought David no joy. Even though Absalom was leading a rebellion against David, it brought David no joy to know that his son had died. And when it was told to him that Absalom had died, David, the text tells us that David was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, David said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, as David returned to Jerusalem, Shimei caught wind of David's victory. Now, you might think, it could be that David was gracious and merciful to Shimei because David wasn't king at this point. Maybe he was gracious to Shimei because he was afraid that Shimei had some army or something behind him that he was going to attack David with. Who knows? Maybe it was a moment of weakness, but now David is back on the throne. Will David repay Will David mete out justice against this worthless fellow, Shimei? Fearing for his life, Shimei ran to Judah. He hurried along to Judah with a number of other men, and he got there before any of them, ran to David, and fell down before David and pled for mercy, saying this in 2 Samuel 19, Let not my Lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the King left Jerusalem. Do not let the King take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my Lord the King. Now David, once again, has it in his power to put this man to death. But not only that, <clears throat> but David's counselors once again were calling on him to do just that as Abishai once again was whispering in David's ears, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David mercifully declared that no one would be put to death. And turning to Shimei, David comforted him with the same words that the Lord had spoken to him through the prophet Nathan. 
Looking at Shimei, he said, You shall not die. And the Lord gave him an oath to that effect. You see, David was a changed man after the Bathsheba incident. The mercy of the Lord experienced by David changed him into a more merciful man himself because that is what the Lord's mercy does in the hearts of those who truly experience it. The mercy of God, his tender-hearted, loving compassion towards his people, whereby he withholds from them just judgment, whereby he withholds from them righteous wrath and instead <clears throat> forgives, leads all to grasp who grasp this truth to the exercise of tender-hearted, loving compassion towards those who would even curse you or hurt you or harm you. Instead of wrath, compassion. Instead of repaying violence with evil, evil is overcome with good. You see, the mercy of God changes a person. The mercy of God brings about a change in those who understand God's grace. And for this reason, one of the virtues and characteristics of someone who has bent the knee to King Jesus and entered into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is mercy. And Jesus makes this clear when he declares in the beatitude this morning, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. See, the practice of living out a merciful life is a surefire sign that someone has bent their knee to King Jesus, that someone has entered into the kingdom of heaven. It is the surefire sign that someone truly has given everything into the hands of Jesus, trusting that he makes everything right, trusting that his judgments are perfect and righteous, trusting in his sovereign oversight of the world and all of, the affair, all of its affairs. Because, listen, every time we withhold mercy, we reveal a lack of trust in God. Every time we take matters into our own hands and lash out to, at, at one another or refuse to be merciful to those around us, we show that we distrust our Lord and we trust faith in ourselves. It is a denial of the gospel to Christ to say on the one hand, I know God's mercy, and then metaphorically to look at those who curse you and say, off with their heads. Now, we love to read the Bible. We love to read ourselves into the biblical narratives of the Bible, right? So when you look at this whole s s narrative of Shimei and David, you know, we've always, we always like to put ourselves in one or the other of those two, uh, of the people that are in the story. For example, uh, how many times have you heard the David and Goliath narrative? Probably a number of times, right? But let me just say, we have a tendency to identify ourselves with the wrong people in the stories. All right? How many times have you heard the narrative of David and Goliath cast as David overcame his giants and you, like David, can overcome your giants too? See, we like to choose the heroes in the story and identify with the heroes in the story. But just let me clear something up for you. You are not David in the story. I am not David in the story. When it comes to the David and Goliath narrative, you and I are the terrified onlookers who refused to step onto the field to fight Goliath because we knew that we would be crushed by him. We knew that we didn't have the power in and of ourselves to defeat that giant who was sitting there in front of us. However, David, anointed by the Spirit of God, is a picture, is a type of Jesus. 
He steps onto the field and wins the seemingly impossible battle for the people, freeing them from enslavement to the threat of the Philistines. We have our great captain Jesus who steps out onto the field and fights the great battle against sin, a battle that we could not win, a battle that we had no chance becoming, being victorious in on, an, on our own. We needed a champion. We needed Jesus to step on the field and do that for us. Now, when we get to the narrative of David and Shimei, once again, we need to realize, <clears throat> you're not David. I'm not David. We are all Shimei. There was a time in all of our lives, and if you haven't put your faith in Christ right now, at this point in your life, when we were or are the enemies of God. And it's by the pure mercy of God that we continued breathing during that time. It's the pure mercy of God that you continue to breathe now if you're rejecting Jesus. All of us cursed the Lord by rejecting His grace. All of us were like Shimei, walking beside the things of the Lord and kicking up dust at them in anger and whipping stones at them. And the enemy, Satan, enters into the equation. The great accuser enters into the equation, much like Abishai, saying, why should this dead dog curse you? Let me go take off his head. And the Lord, in His mercy withheld, the Lord in his mercy at this moment is withholding his just and holy wrath. Shimei's only hope, our only hope, was to throw himself upon the mercy of David. Our only hope is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of our Lord. Now, the Lord's mercy isn't simply the withholding of wrath which is in itself a most wonderful thing, isn't it? I'm so glad and happy that the Lord withheld His wrath from me and brought me to the saving knowledge of His Son. But there is another side to the mercy coin, which is compassionate action. And this, a great example of the Lord's compassionate action in the lives of people, something we should emulate, is found in the Hagar narrative in Genesis 17. <coughs> the Lord had called a man named Abram, Abraham <clears throat> to be the one through whom he would bring about all the blessings, <clears throat> blessings to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord came to Abram in a dream and said, <clears throat> Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him, the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here in Genesis 15, 
Abraham is told that he would have a child. Now here's where the situation gets a little tricky, right? The only information that Abraham has at this point is that there's going to be a number of descendants and that the child would be his very own. It would be a child that is produced from his own body. We aren't given any information about who the mother would be yet. That only comes in chapter 17 after the Hagar incident. And at this point, Sarah, Abram's wife, is barren. She couldn't have any children. She was almost 90. So you got barrenness and age working against you. And so, utilizing the custom of the day, Sarah offered up her Egyptian servant to Abraham, saying, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Now, in this day, this situation was actually quite common. <clears throat> it would be the equivalent of the modern-day fertility clinic, as servants provided heirs for for a family with a barren wife quite regularly. And so as it happened, Hagar conceived. And she got pregnant and she bore a child, a child named Ishmael. But Hagar couldn't help herself. When she found out that she was pregnant, when she found out that she was carrying Abram's child, she started to look down on Sarah. And that got Sarah angry. And so Sarah ran into the room where Abraham was in a big huff, saying, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from Sarah. There's a comedy of errors here. Everyone responds poorly here. Hagar responds poorly by looking down on Sarah. Abram responds poorly by letting Sarah's emotions get the best of her and letting her treat Hagar with contempt. And Sarah is responds poorly by treating Hagar with contempt to the point that Hagar runs away. And as Hagar is fleeing, the Lord came to her and alleviated her concern promising to care for her child, promising to multiply Ishmael's offspring. And Hagar, the downtrodden, said to the Lord, you are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And so Hagar went back to live with Abram and Sarah. However, once again, now uh, once again, Sarah, now herself a mother, as she had bore the child of promise named Isaac, said to Abraham, <clears throat> This woman, cast out this slave woman, along with her son. For the son of this slave woman will not be heir with my son Isaac. And so Abraham reluctantly sent Hagar away. <clears throat> Now, you've got to imagine in this situation, you've got to imagine at this time what it means to be a single woman with a young child in the wilderness. <clears throat> what is Hagar to do? This is a time and a place of great danger. She has no resources to care for a child except for the bit of bread and water that Abraham had given to her before he sent her away. And here she is, alone, wandering in the wilderness. 
And the situation grew even worse when her supply of water was gone and her supply of food was gone. And so in her despair, now imagine how hopeless you have to be in this situation. She put the son that she could no longer care for, the son that she could no longer support, under a bush and walked about a bush, a, a, the distance of an arrow shot away from that bush, sat down herself, weeping and crying the cries that only a mother could make as she watches her child in that situation. And she said, Let me not look on the death of my child. What a scenario. What an impossible scenario. But our Lord is merciful, as we've been learning. Our Lord is compassionate, and so he acted to help Hagar, one who, listen, like every one of us, was unworthy of such help from the Lord. And the text tells us, it goes on to tell us, God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift the boy, hold him fast with your hand, and I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So you see, as Hagar sat helplessly under a tree, destitute of any and all resources, impoverished, unable to help herself or her young son, all she could do was weep. All she could do was mourn. All she could do was cry. And the Lord, in his compassion, heard her cries and came to her, encouraging her with promises of Ishmael's health and the Lord's care for Ishmael. And the Lord also opened her eyes to see a well of water where he took care of her physical needs as well. The Lord, in his mercy, concerned himself with caring for all of Hagar's immediate needs. And in a very real sense, once again, you and I are Hagar, sitting helplessly under a tree, weeping with nowhere to turn, unable to fix or relieve the situation we find ourselves in. Until, until God in his great mercy has compassion on us, alleviating our great needs. And what is our great need? What is our greatest need? Righteousness before him and eternal life in the presence and in his presence, both of which are offered to everyone in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So why continue a life of weeping? Why continue a life sitting under a tree? Why continue the life of Shimei walking down the road cursing and throwing stones at the Lord when the Lord offers you in his great mercy a life of delight and a life of joy in him? So you see, mercy is an attribute of the Lord that consists of his withholding of judgment and wrath from well-deserving sinners and also his compassionate care to, and to resolve our greatest difficulties, be they our physical needs or even more, our spiritual needs. And for all who have experienced this tender and kind-hearted mercy of the Lord, they reveal that experience 
by being themselves merciful. Mercy is a characteristic. Mercy is a virtue that is present in the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Which is why Jesus said once again, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this mercy of God is extolled on every page of Scripture. This mercy of God is extolled and exalted by the prophets, like Isaiah, for example, who wrote, The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And the Lord, through his prophet Joel, held out mercy as a foundational reason for repentance when he said, when the Lord said through him, Yet even now return to me with all of your hearts with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. But it's not just the, the prophets but it's also the psalmists who exult in God's mercy. In 103 verse 8 we read the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In 111.4 we read the Lord is gracious and merciful. In 116, verse 5, we read, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And in 145, verses 8 and 9, which we read at the beginning, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And Jeremiah the prophet, even in the depths of his lament, experiencing the great grief of watching his countrymen carried off into captivity, remembered the mercy of God when he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so we this morning, us, who love the Lord and exalt Him for the great mercy He has shown to us, for the great mercy He has given to us who believe, recognize that it is by the pure mercy of God that we have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is the mercy of God that led to the display of His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul held this fact out to the believers in Ephesus when he wrote, once again, magnifying the mercy of the Lord, saying, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is why Jesus says, in our beatitude this morning, blessed are the merciful. Because it's the merciful who have come to grasp the reality of God's mercy in their own lives. The mercy of God that has been lavished on us who believe works itself out from us as we show mercy to others. And we grasp the reason Jesus commanded in Luke, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. I mean, how could it be any other way, right? How could it be any other way? If you are one who recognizes your poverty of spirit and the fact that you have nothing in your hand to offer the Lord, your good works mean nothing. We can never measure up to the perfect standard of holiness 
and re- you recognize that the only thing that you can have to rely on is God's mercy, how could it be any other way? If you recognize the depths and wickedness of your sin and so you mourn over it because you've offended the Lord and you've experienced his mercy, how could it be any other way? How could it be that we would, when we were ourselves, Shimei, cut off the head of those around us? How could it be that we, when we were ourselves helpless like Hagar, leave her to die in the wilderness rather than care for her? Blessed are the merciful. God's mercy shows us who he is. God's mercy shows us who we are. We are the ones who desperately need that mercy. We are the ones who, de- who deserve his wrath. And we would be enduring it right now if not for the tender mercy of our God. So, Blessed are the merciful. Your mercy towards others reveals who you are. Are you one who understands and lives by the mercy of God? Then show mercy. We are merciful when we treat those in distress with compassion and forgive those who have sinned against us withholding anger, refusing to hold on to, and dispense any punishments that we think they deserve. Are you merciful? Then you are blessed, because it is these, the merciful, who will be shown mercy. Father, we praise you this morning for the most wonderful of attributes, for the most wonderful of characteristics, that you are a God of mercy. And Lord, each and every one of us knows our own hearts. And while we are very, very good at putting on a show externally, whether it's on our social media accounts or whether it's on uh, being out in the world, we can put on a good show. But we know who we are. We know what's in our hearts. We know what goes on in our minds. We know deep down that the only hope we have is your mercy given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would truly experience that mercy, understand who we are and understand how wonderful you are. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, living in those who have truly experienced your mercy, who have truly bent the knee to the King, that that mercy would work itself out from us to all of our relationships. That we would be those who are characterized by mercy. We would be those who withhold anger and stay our hands and fill that spot with compassion and the meeting of both physical needs and even more importantly, spiritual needs. We can only do this by your power. We can only do this by your strength. We can only do this by your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.